Welcome back, everyone, to the Yacht Rock Podcast, Out of the Main. Uh, hello there, Captain. Wait, how do I get to be captain? You're the captain now. Remember you said to look at me, you know, in that weird Somalian accent like a pirate? <laughs> you were the captain now. I'm the captain now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All right. Um, yeah, because you're going to kind of steer the ship a little bit today as we talk about a reader, sugge- uh, sorry, a viewer suggested yeah. uh, topic. Not viewers either. <laughs> That's true. Listener. <laughs> yeah, but listener Greg, was it, I yeah. think, sent yeah. us a viewer mail, which is odd that he would send it to that mailbox. But anyway, so remind us how we got to this. One of the, we did the episode Ask Us Anything, and we took viewer mail, and one of the suggestions was that because he had enjoyed so much our breakdown of how the horns were used, the Jerry Hayes stuff, mm-hmm. um, kind of pointing attention to that, he suggested that we do the same kind of thing with background vocals because harmonies are a big, big staple of West Coast music. I want to say that what we're going to talk about today is really emblematic of that whole West Coast sound. It's not unique to yacht rock, right. this, this use of the vocals. The West Coast definitely did things a certain way. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, then ended up in yacht rock. But even a lot of the examples to just sort of illustrate what we're talking about are going to be well outside of yacht rock because yeah. they just, they're good examples of techniques. So yeah. this is more, much more of a wider West Coast AOR discussion. <clears throat> and we did cover some interesting things that I might bring up again when we did the How It's Made episode very early on in season one. Right. Because it's very interesting to me how, again, Yacht Rock or West Coast or music of the era, were, were, how they were able to pull off such a lush sound, which I always make the caveat. I don't know if the OGs, somebody could tell us, if the OGs considered lush harmonies as a marker of Yacht Rock. I, when I hear it, I think of Yacht Rock. So I, to me, it is a marker. But how they pull that off given the technology limitations of the era. I think they, going back to what I was just saying, I think they are emblematic of West Coast music as opposed to East Coast. Like when I think of some of the bigger East Coast artists of the era, uh, Billy Joel, Joe Jackson, you know, these guys I associate with New York. I don't mm. associate them with a whole lot of background True. vocals and harmonies and stuff. It's a little different. So that is, in my mind, more of a West Coasty thing. Yes, and we and this is done whether you're using um, an artist with session cats or just real quick because we had spoken with um, I think it was uh, the voice of player. It was yeah, Peter, Peter Beckett, Beckett, right? Who mentioned back in the day, and I think even Derek um, Holt said this from Climax Blues Band. Everybody in the band needed to sing well because you were pulling off at least three part harmonies typically yep. live. And on the studio, or in, you know, in the studio on the record. Well, let's go back to one of the stories I kind of told a little bit. I just kind of hinted at that uh, I read the Glenn Johns book many, many years ago. And so I'm kind of working from memory. But Glenn Johns was a producer, came out of England. He was associated with uh, the Beatles, uh, Led Zeppelin, The Who, Rolling Stones, worked with a lot of them. Eventually came over to the United States, ended up in the West Coast, did the early Steve Miller Band albums. So he got to know a lot of the West Coast things. And he was the producer of the first couple of Eagles records. And he tells a story in there about how Again, going back to you, had to go to a bar to hear these bands to be discovered. You didn't discover them on TikTok back then. Really? You you had to actually go and listen. They actually had to be able to play. That's so extra. (laughs) I know. So long ago. (laughs) He um, came away the first time fairly unimpressed, I guess. and With the Eagles. With the Eagles. He'd fit right in in the Yacht Rock group. Yes, he would. Then, for whatever reason, whether it was the label or I don't remember, he was coaxed into seeing them again. Saw them a second time and was still sitting there. It was kind of like, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And then they broke into an acapella version of a song called Seven Bridges Road, which was an older song from 1969, written by uh, a guy named Steve Young. And the original sounds a little like this. There are stars in the southern sky Southward as you go But they reinvented it this way. Now, this is taken from a live album later when they're established, but this would give us a good example of what Glenn was probably hearing. There are stars in the southern sky Southward as you go So when he heard that, he was he realized he had something special because of their ability to harmonize. Yeah. And what makes their harmonies work so well, which will come up in multiple places, is not just their ability to sing, but the fact that their voices, the difference in their voices. You got Glenn Fry, who's a little more nasal. You got uh, Don Henley, who's got a little bit of an airy rasp to him. And then at that time, early on, it would have been maybe Randy Meisner, but either way, it was Timothy B. Schmidt later. Had a nice glossy falsetto. Mm-hmm. Um you know, at one point, Joe Walsh was singing with them later on. But they were different voices that when you added them up, they filled in the gaps that the others were missing. Or it just creates this magical blend. And that was when he knew he had something. Yeah, interesting. So then he, they got signed largely on that performance. Well, largely probably. on that, yeah. Wow. You know, another uh, great example of uh, a band that sings. And by having three very distinct voices, very different voices, you get something Entirely different than, say, stacking one person. Um, sticks, uh, very nyadi, I know, but uh, they, you have the sort of show tunes, the almost operatic power of Dennis D. Young with the big vibrato. I'm sailing away. Then you got the deep, sort of guttural, raspy sound of James Young. And then in the middle, you've got the more smooth, upper register, classic, smooth rock voice of Tommy Shaw. Haven't we been here before? And when you throw all of those together in a mix, you just, you, you get magic. In the yacht rock genre, the two that come to mind, Player, because Peter Beckett mentioned okay. it. I have a good example from okay. Player that I wouldn't mind covering. Yep. Um, we talked to him about this really quickly, but never really got to invest ourselves into it. But one of the points I wanted to make is that the way that harmonies are done in rock music, certainly in this West Coast rock, is entirely different than what you might be familiar with if you were in choir or in musical theater. In those instances, you're often you're thinking in terms of the melody part, and then you've got your soprano part, your tenor part, your alto part, your bass part, or what, whatever. And they sort of all sort of follow. They all follow sort of in, in the same shape, and you not in unison, but you know they're they're just tracking with each other. Um, and it's often considered okay. Well, the melody is the feature, so we put that on top, and we harmonize underneath it. I know that's not exclusively true, but that's generally people think we'll harmonize underneath it because we don't want to 
overshadow the melody. Mm-hmm. The melody. But in a pop rock instance, like when if I'm making a record, the harmonies underneath the lead vocal almost do nothing for me when I'm mixing. Mm. I don't if I use them at all. It's the often they think of okay, here's the melody, mm, harmony third above, mm, harmony third above that. Mm. Hello. Hello. You know, where are these, we're going third above, third above, everything's above, and that is where the air is, that's where the power is, that's where you get the uh, the accent, because when they're, when they're doing these backup vocals, they're not just harmonizing along with the whole song or even the whole chorus, they're specifically targeting a lot of times certain phrases mm-hmm. that they want to accentuate. So they might be doing ooh into a word, like ooh, love you, you know, because they want to accent the word mm-hmm. love you. Yes. You know, so it's not singing, I really want to love you. It might be ooh, love you, because that's yep. where the accent is. Um, now, you also might have a lot of counter motion, too, where you're not necessarily following the same melodic path as the lead vocalist. So this is the example that we had from Player. This time I'm in it for love. We get to the chorus. You'll notice they sing the first part in probably roughly a three-part harmony all together following the melody. Then the second half of the chorus comes in and you've got this falsetto descending line working opposite direction of the melody. And it's just absolute perfection. So let's listen to that. Notice they don't sing the for you at the end. This time I'm in it, it's harmonized and they drop out for yes. you. So it's not just, well, let's just harmonize. This, right. it's, you're much more goes on than thinking that. You're thinking about what parts do we want to amp up and which ones do we want to pull back from. And <clears throat> before we move on to my second band that I don't think of, see if you have anything for them as well. But going back to the how it's made, I think it's interesting. It's probably not to you because it's so matter of fact, but how they would record, you might have three parts. Right, mm-hmm. unlike the SATB choir, they would have four or more parts. This is all about doing fewer parts, but more voices doing those parts. So they would double and sometimes triple the same line, right? Yeah, you can make a big sound out of just one harmony if it's the right interval that fits the chords and fits the melody, and like it's just a third above the melody. You can make a big sound out of just adding that one part, but with multiple voices so you might layer that multiple times sometimes you're only adding two parts you aren't doing the full four-part thing it's melody and then what's above it and what's the next one above that you're not concerned about four and you're not concerned about below mostly yeah i mean there's those that do it but i know that those get downplayed in the mix a lot of times because it brings weight to the thing not weight in a good way weight in the lack of clarity Mm. and then unlike you know how you would do it today with unlimited tracks back then you were limited to fewer than 24 tracks probably Right. Um, yeah. So you'd have to get all the dudes in a room or all the ladies, and you got to pull this off live every single time, and everyone's got to hit their part. Ideally, yeah, you're getting three people minimum around a mic. Yeah. And there's probably well, there's two different approaches. One is they could all pick a harmony and sing them all in unison. Mm-hmm. But then there's also saying, well, let's here's our three part, here's my part, here's your part, and here's that part, three part harmony, and let's sing that, and then we do that multiple times. So there's different ways to get there. Yeah. Queen was infamous for 
all of them going in and singing together unison, picking, okay, here's the harmony we're going to lay down now. All three of us are going to sing it in unison. We're going to track that 24 times. And then we're going to go back and do that with the next thing. And they're going to bounce it down to, you know, another track and just kind of keep stacking and keep stacking. Yeah, can we pick a song real quick? I know it's not yacht, but should we play a little... Uh the obvious is Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, but maybe the better example in terms of the, the that technique was somebody to love. Perfect. Anybody find me somebody to love. So since we're not doing Yachty or we're going outside the Yachty room, I have another good example for you. One of the great uh, I think groups from the West Coast that arrange their backup vocals, going back to what I was saying earlier about how you might do ooze in some places and then sing certain words. Let's go to Ario Speedwagon, for example. Let's notice how they put together the chorus on Keep On Loving You in terms of what words are they harmonizing and what words are they leaving alone. So you see how they don't hit every single word. They accent certain things. But now we're going to go forward to 2 minutes and 48 seconds and watch how they add in a call answer in between in the backups. And that kind of technique lives out throughout their entire catalog. Absolutely. Very cool. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, I'm going to bring us back into the harbor real quick. All right. um, only because it's the other uh, aforementioned band that I always think of when I think of great lush harmonies. And it's got to be Ambrosia. Yeah, I've got some Ambrosia on the list. Uh, I thought there was something worth listening to on how much I feel. So let's pull up that one and uh, listen how the backups actually lead the chorus and then the lead answers them. We've talked about in horns about the call and the answer. Mm. Uh, A lot of times we think of the lead making a statement and the backups answering it. They do it in reverse and then at the end of the chorus they all join together. So I love how this is assembled. Well, let's not forget that how um, the verses to Biggest Part of Me start. They start that with the backup vocals. Exactly right. There's a new sun rising. I can see a new rising. 
So this is a little trick of the trade for Ambrosia. Yeah, they uh, they seem to flip it upside down, right? Yep. You know, it's another interesting thing. It's kind of just a, a, an aside. I read somewhere, this goes way back, this is prior to the internet, so I wasn't able to verify that it's true because that's what the internet's for, right? Yeah, well, Lincoln always said half of what you read on the internet is not true. <laughs> Lincoln said <laughs> Abraham, that. Abraham, yes. Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Jackson had an interesting technique for recording vocals. Now, this would be probably by the time he was established. Uh, I think this was a Bruce Swedeen interview I was reading probably back in the days of Mix Magazine or Electronic Musician, and... So I'm guessing he was pointing to the recording for Off the Wall and or Thriller, maybe as much as later to Bad. But Michael liked to, once he conceived of what it was going to be and he envisioned it all in his head, he just wanted to go. He wanted nothing to slow down in between. He wanted no breaks. It was enough time to rewind the tape and that was it. But he also had this concept of singing each part on a different mic. For Mm. the difference, for the variance. And Bruce Swedeen talked about how they would line up like 12 mics right right next to each other. And Michael would sing a part, top to bottom, and as the tape was rewinding, he'd move over to the next mic, ready, go. And he would do that 12 times. He would fill out the entire 12 tracks that he was hitting with vocals. And he just had it all in his head and it was just a case of going down the line boom 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 and and putting it all together in fact he would do takes that were nothing more than him making those funny sounds Uh, all that stuff (laughs) he he would do that that, those were overdub tracks oh my god all that stuff that's crazy holy smokes but he had the vision he had you know in his head this is still the time of 24 tracks so that all had to be bounced probably yeah they were probably sophisticated enough they were using multiple 24 tracks by then Interesting. You know, one of the best examples sticking within the harbor is that sometimes the vocals, the backup vocals, don't even entirely connect to the lead vocal in terms of they don't harmonize with them, really. They're not necessarily call and answer. They're sort of doing their own thing in the background. And in fact, I say sometimes, it's pretty rare. But one of the most famous background vocal sort of lessons is Michael McDonald and what he did in Peg. Mm. And if we listen to Peg, and this comes up in that uh, documentary about it, is that the part that he had a hard time getting a handle on was that Donald and uh, Walter wanted him to sing specific words with specific sort of shape to the way he said the words. And he wasn't really singing phrases. He was singing tiny bits of phrases, foreign movie, you know, uh, well, let's listen to Peg and try to isolate what he's doing and notice that it's not really connected to the lead vocal at all. So he also, he said that he felt like he was putting down horn parts because he wasn't really saying phrases. Mm-hmm. You know, right? He was having trouble because some of the notes were so close, some of the yeah. harmonies were so tight yeah. that even he was having trouble yeah. hearing it. They would take those complex chords that you build up one, three, five, seven, nine. You know, so then you got all these notes, but they would take those higher notes, the seven and nine, and bring them down an octave, which put them right next to other notes in the chord, seemingly in know. conflict. Yeah, seemingly yeah. dissonant. But yep. once that all stacked up, the blend. You know, made jazzy magic. I mean, that's what jazzy is. It's yep. it's equal part dissonance and you know it's tug and release. So yeah, 
Can I, can I play something here for you? Sure. I'm trying to absolve my earlier guilt by, uh, what would you call it? The uh, Well, we did our whole What Was I Thinking episode. Yeah. And um, before truly understanding the essence of Yacht Rock, one of my, I would consider it West Coasty. I don't even know if it's West Coasty or not, but favorite tunes is by um, the band Journey. As oh, you know. yeah. And what suckered me into not only the uh, the Trojan Horse lyrical content, but what suckered me into thinking this could be maybe considered adjacent was the vocals in Lights. When the lights go down in the city And the sun shines on the bed That, if you just isolated that, to me, that's reminiscent of either an ambrosia or a player or something like that. Because hmm. it's so thick. And it is very thick. And it's multiple voices. Yeah, if you go back and compare that to the Queen example. Yes. Because that was the same producer, Roy Thomas Baker. And he would probably stack that similar. Yeah, he did the first uh, couple of Cars records, too. So when you think of a, a song like Just What I Needed, they're kind of stacked the same way, too. But that's a little bit of a different sound. It's harsher. It is. He did it. Yeah. Well, it's just the production overall is harsher True. than you get in yeah. rock. But um, I'll, I'll let you pick a favorite song if you don't have any notes on there. But... Boston's first album. How are they doing that? Well, first of all, I would just... Well, you got Brad Delp doing all of it, and he's one of the greatest rock singers of all time. In Uh, uh, Endless range, just a brilliant understanding of how to... How to stack these parts and create these layers that still... Sometimes when you create... When one singer sings all the parts, it can get cloudy as a listener to know what you're listening to. But it was clear in those mixes what the lead was and what the backups were, even though he was doing all of them. So he just knew absolutely what he was doing. So am I allowed to make a request then? Sure. Let's hear a little of a Hitch a Ride. So Rick Beato goes into a couple of their songs in detail, and he isolates some of those real high harmonies that he's yeah. throwing on top. Some of it's falsetto, some of it's just screaming. Yep, it's just a, but singing screaming, and it's just amazing sound texture. Yeah, he loves to analyze the uh, guitar lead section at the end of that one. Yes, too. he does. Uh, let me play a little bit of this one for you with uh, some shameless self promotion from the new Page Ninety Nine record. Um, I wrote a song called "Ticking Away," and when I sent it to Russ to do backups, my assumption was that he was going to harmonize the lead vocal and maybe add some oohs and ahs. Mm. And in what we were just talking about, instead of harmonizing with the lead vocal, he built these backups that completely work in the holes and provide a sort of a, almost a groove against the lead vocal that was completely unexpected. And it just elevated it to an entirely new level. So let's hit a little of that. We're going to go to the second chorus here. A little 
Boston-ish in the mm. end there, the way he stacked those high parts. Yeah, that yeah. makes it yeah. I hope you know. All right, that's okay. Uh, yes, have you no shame, sir. That Yeah, that's very well done, though. Agreed. Yeah. Doobie Brothers is another one that we brought up when we were asked to put together our on-the-spot um, Rushmores. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure if we were supposed to do groups or individuals. Right. And I just pulled two quick examples because I wanted to draw a comparison to uh, from the old Doobies, pre-Michael, yep. to the Michael Doobies. And as much as he had an effect on their sound, it's amazing how much their vocal sound as a group harmonizing didn't change all that much. Mm. So we're going to start with uh, the new stuff, so 1980. Let's uh, play a little bit of the chorus of One Step Closer. Then we're going to go all the way back to 1972 and compare that to the chorus of Listen to the Music. Texture didn't change all that much, that interestingly. Much. Kind of surprised me. Even eight years apart, too. It's yeah. not just the absence or presence of Michael. Uh, all right, I got two more quick examples before we move on. All right. Uh, Jay Graydon told us about how he, he laid down a note uh, just for key reference for Tom Kelly. And Tom Kelly, we wondered if this was a lift from the middle of the song where they had already assembled the chorus and then just took a vocals-only mix and edited it to the front. But no, he said that this was actually recorded this way from the bottom up. And Tom Kelly was the vocalist. And this is other world harmonization on the beginning of this song called Stranded. That might even make Brad Delp jealous. Woo! Well, that's up there. So that's why Tom Kelly was on our list of potentials for the uh, Rushmore as an individual. And then last one, Little River Band, we both said, belong on that kind of list. And this one is just incredible harmonization, but also goes back to the arrangement. The way that uh, Player did the chorus of This Time of Minute for Love. We have a similar thing here. Third verse of... Their song, Help is on the Way. Notice the first time they harmonize here. Why are you in so much hurry? Is it really worth the worry? Look around. Then slow Then when the second line of the verse comes, notice the high part they add on top. All that on a verse. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you ever wanted to hear uh, their vocal prowess in isolation, let's not forget how Lonesome Loser begins. Again, we had the same question. Was that a lift, or right. did they record it that way? Now I don't know. I was pretty sure it was probably a lift, but question. Um, maybe not. Okay, one last little thing. I don't have necessarily an example to play, but really top to bottom, a, a case study in West Coast backup vocal arranging 
going back to Dane Donahue's record. Mm. I mean, he had everybody on that, you know, Yachty people, but also Yachty people like Stevie Nicks and Don Henley and stuff. And all of those people brought their ideas and their textures. And that album, you could go through top to bottom and just focus on what the background vocals are doing. Absolutely. <clears throat> and I would be remiss if I didn't mention in this episode, well, let me ask you, we talked about maybe a... Who the Jerry Hay, who's the equivalent of Jerry Hay mm-hmm. um, a vocal standpoint? And in the prior episode, I wondered, is it uh, Bill Champlin? Because he's on so much, so much doing backup vocals that I never knew at the time. But, man, he's everywhere. And then you said maybe it's Michael McDonald because he's kind of. Yeah. He Having them. witnessed the way Bill works with the band, it would not surprise me. I could just picture him in the studio just taking control of how the backup vocals work. I mean, we hear what he does when he stacks by himself, but even in a situation where he's with other singers, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm guessing only from what we saw, but mm-hmm. um, I could just see him taking sort of the, the arrangement. The and, Jerry Hay role. Yeah, yeah, taking the Jerry Hay role. Good point, yeah. <clears throat> yep. All right, well, and then just last question for you. Okay. Um we brought this up when we did an episode. I think it was on uh, is when we talked about Steve Lukather's book. Right. But wasn't there an interesting story? Explain what the concept of flying something in okay. is, and then what happened on one of their tracks because they couldn't they couldn't do what they had to do. Yeah, I've used that term either bouncing or flying in a few times, and what that means is in I'll explain how it worked in the Toto aspect in the book. I think they were talking about. Africa at the time, mm-hmm. but in general, when they were recording their records, David Page kind of handled the recording of the vocals, and he was very meticulous. He had very specific ideas, and more to that, he wanted there to be a lot of power in the upper harmonies. Again, mm-hmm. talking about you stack parts above. He wanted the next part, the next part, the next part, as high as he could go. And, of course, it was Bobby Kimball having to sing the highest part. So he was putting Bobby Kimball up in the highest parts of his register trying to hit these harmony parts. And not only is it more strenuous to sing up there, but it's harder to get the intonation right the Mm -hmm. higher you go. It's more noticeable. And, I don't know, people said that Bobby Kimball had difficulty with intonation, but... Did he, or was he just being put in an area where it was almost impossible to excel? Whatever the case was, it took them forever to stack the harmonies on this song, thinking it was probably Africa. It was Africa, and, as I recall. You know, David Page then had the question, okay, that took us X amount of hours. You're telling me i got to do this now for <laughs> how many other times does this part occur in the album or in the, in the song? And so he devised this idea and said, what if we just took what we have here, turn on only the vocals, mix down the vocals to another tape. So now mm-hmm. this is kind of like bouncing. Bouncing means you take all of those parts, you play them back and record them onto like a stereo pair of tracks. You might take 10 or 12 tracks of vocals and bounce them down to two. And then you freed up all those other tracks that you originally recorded on. Then you can add more vocals and you can keep doing this until you either ran out of tracks or you started to hear the fidelity degrade. Their idea was not just how they wanted to add more parts, but they wanted to take what they had accomplished on Chorus 1 and figure out how do we move it down to Chorus 2 and Chorus 3 in the fade-out, which now we know as copy and paste. So they would record, once they've gotten all everything they like, the mix that they like, all the vocal parts they like, they would go and record that off to another tape, 
a stereotype. They would mix that down to another stereotype. Now they would go down to chorus two and they would have to figure out the timing of how to record off of that tape back into the multi-track recorder. Oh, like live that almost. Stereo, that stereo mix of vocals so that they would have to align those. And it would go through a uh, you know trial and error to figure out when do I start the tape versus when do I start the recording until they got it so it would line up just perfectly. But that became their solution that was easier than saying, let's try and record all of those parts again. And that became really a staple of that ho- the whole era. I mean, they, they weren't the only ones that did it. It, was, it became very much a staple of how vocals were done. And now, of course, the trade-off is that they're the same every time. What we bemoan about today's copy and paste music, that once right. you've heard the first chorus, you feel you've heard everything. So, you know, there's a little bit of balance you have to figure out with that. I guess I was probably, well, I'll just say I never would have noticed that about Africa, that the choruses all sound the same. So, but no. I, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking there's no way they could have done that other it, than sing it. Back then, it didn't really occur to me, maybe because we didn't have the knowledge of it, it didn't yeah. occur to me that the percussion stuff is a loop that you're hearing the same four bars yep. over and over again. But they did play live on top of it. So, a lot of that kind of washes that away. All right. Well, I hope we uh, did uh, the topic justice, listener Greg. We tried to cover as much as we could in a 45 minute podcast. Yeah, is it 45 minutes already? Uh, could be. No. Yeah, we better move on to the lightning round because we haven't paid Before our rent this yeah, month. You're right. All right. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On to the lightning round. Well, you're going to have to go first because you stole my uh, one of my tunes by dissecting it. Well, what do you expect? Yeah. Or I can just throw it away yeah. and just put it in there. But what, what do you got for us? All right. Well, my buried, uh, or my float your, float your boat, I, I'm... This, I'm still in the uh, shameful self-promotion era <laughs> of my new album. I could knock it uh, down by saying it's yacht. Yes. Well, I think this is the yachtiest song on the record. It's certainly halftime shuffle. And so let's get your float your boat impressions of page 99's Inside Voice. Well, first of all, you're trying to bribe the judge by throwing in some uh, single note uh, rhythm guitar <laughs> palm mutes there. So who's the guitar player there? Yeah, that's Dwayne Harlick, same guy who's singing, same guy that uh, wrote the initial idea. Yeah. yeah. The first time I heard that, um, for me, I was hearing some Steely Dan vibes, probably because the super slow uh, halftime shuffle. Yeah, I think it was, when he conceived of it, it was a bit of a Babylon Sisters yes. vibe. Uh, took on a little more of a Pages thing, but uh, mm-hmm. that's what we were after on that one. Yeah, well, you did it. I, I mean, the whole album floats my boat, so that's a definite 
Yes, for me. Okay, so I'll, I'll ask each one, each song, from each <laughs> ensuing week. Boy, have you no shame. <laughs> All right, no, this we, is it. I we know promise. the answer to that question. All right, so I'm going to go into the August Red catalog here. <laughs> no, 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 I wouldn't do that. Um, I'm just going to throw out that um, I can't remember if we brought this song up or not, but uh, when I started way back listening to Yacht Rock and probably only on Sirius, only was exposed to Baby Come Back by Player. They actually, I give them credit, started playing This Time I'm In It For Love. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, yes, I forgot. I forgot about that song. And then, uh, much to my surprise, a couple other people had never heard it or didn't remember it whatsoever. So probably not buried for most of our listening audience, but it is a buried treasure for me. And since we brought it up, it's, um, it's going on the list. Yeah, I think that fits somewhat as a buried treasure because I think for most people, like you said, they're going to, they either won't remember it, but even those that do are going to say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Exactly. Because, so. I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was number one, but it, it charted top 40. It you know did, that. Yeah. yeah. All right, which leads me to, I guess, a, uh, that was a buried treasure, wasn't it? Or was that a float your boat? Sorry, I'm getting getting, backwards. Are we getting things out of order here? We did. So let me go back to my does it float your boat. Okay. Um, as we already know, my buried treasure. Yeah, um, it's a good one. You know, I'm on this never-ending quest to uh, find more and more Yachty Ambrosia. Mm-hmm. And um, here's a song I, I want to tell myself belongs, <laughs> and it just, I don't think it can any which way. Um, but I want to get your take on Nice, Nice, Very Nice. Nice. <laughs> Does it float your boat? Not at all. Uh, <laughs> I want it to because I, I want there to be more Ambrosia know, in my mix. I know. And I, I think it is in my playlist. It's 1975. I think it was their first hit, was it not? Or I'm trying to remember what Burley said. You shouldn't worry yourself whether it is or it isn't. I yeah, know. But for sure. you know what? Then I listen to it, though, and it's just, it feels like such an outlier. Like, it I can't is. even forgive myself. I thought the scores were interesting, by the way. Okay. JD gave it a five. So that's like a definitely not in his mind. Uh, I might agree with JD on that one. Yeah, whereas Steve gave it a 65. No, no, no. Yeah, the 65 is awfully high. The other two were 20 and 15, so. I have um, a feeling Steve voted before he heard the song. They told him it was Ambrosia, and he said 65. That's what I would have (laughs) done. I know. That's what I would have done. All right. Well, we're all out of order. This whole court is out of order. Um, But I think we're back to you now. All right. Uh, Can you handle the truth? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the truth. This is a buried treasure uh, Dane Donahue, uh, we've been talking about harmonies. I wanted to play one of his favorites that he's told me that uh, he keeps going back to as an example of how he wants his backup vocals to sound. So note on this one from an arrangement standpoint how the harmonies will sing a phrase with the lead vocalist and then sort of drift off into ooze. So this is the opposite of ooh words. This is words into ooze. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? So 
so that's a case study in, I mean, the whole album is, as I said, a case study in how to do backup vocals. I think every uh, sort of technique we've touched on was used on that record. Yeah. I think I hear Timothy B. Schmidt in that. You look it up? Uh, Yeah. I I mean, it might take me a while, but. um, Well, I can edit out the space. I do believe uh, he keeps pointing to that one on some of the stuff that we're working on together. He keeps pointing to that one when he wants to give an example of uh, Eagles style ooze. Yes. In, in, uh, I think that may have had Henley and J.D. Souther and probably Stevie Nicks may have been all on that one. And Timothy Bishmet. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but... Also is, could have featured Jay Winding and... I'm sure that's Jay on piano, yeah. Yeah, and Bill Champlin. He's on that record. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, he was probably the one getting it all in order. The maestro, right? yeah. The maestro, yeah, exactly. All right. That brings us to off the map, does it not? It does. Who's first? Uh, you go first. All right, because we've gotten so out of order, I've lost track. Yes, this, I've mentioned this whole chord is out of order. <laughs> a few times lately, I have focused, yeah, well, we both have actually, on solos as part of our Off the Map and featuring, I remember we did uh, the marimba solo from uh, Moonlight, Moonlight Feels right. right, and then mm-hmm. I had another Starbuck tune, and I think there was another solo, but... Uh, you were asking me last week to play something for as long as I can before the uh, judges or the <laughs> censors come and shut shut us down. Yes. Well, we're going to try that again. This is a very off-the-map song. This is from Go West. It's from their second album, 1987. The song is called The King is Dead. But you've got to hear the piano solo at the end of this. It's lengthy, so I'm going to see what I can get away with, but also pay attention to the way the soloist keeps changing the phrasing of what he's doing, and it changes the way the whole song grooves. This is really stellar playing. Check it out. That's sick. Whoa, yeah. It's a uh, guy named Peter John, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Vitesse, V-E-T-T-E-S-E, Scottish guy. I guess he was known, he uh, played with Jethro Tull in the 80s. So that's kind of where he's done a whole bunch of other things, but that's kind of what he was known for. But So this is a guy who's got probably prog rock as well as big time jazz chops in his locker. Gotcha. Wow. Well, that was very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And very off the map, I might add. Yep. But that's why it's that's, there. That's good because I am going to finally get to a song that I put on my list for off the map when we first started this podcast three years ago. <laughs> three years ago. The more we got into what Yacht Rock is, the less the song became relevant. <laughs> so it's been sitting there because, you know, we started back in the day when we, we did think that maybe the Eagles are on the boat or some of the right. strummy rock, yeah. right? Like, yeah, uh, we did. You know, fire fall and yeah. things like that. Anyways, so this is an example of that type of music. Um, but the reason it's relevant today is because this is a band from Minnesota called Jayhawks. 
Oh, yeah. Who are famous for their harmonies. So Indeed. we're talking very Eagles-esque and Poco-esque in their yep. structure. And right? they record it. You can tell just the way they record it. They're still recording it the old way. They're not fixing things that are maybe not perfect. Ah. Um, and I've seen them do it live, and they're exceptional live. It's got a female voice in the mix, going back to uh, Stevie mm. Nicks there, maybe. Mm. So anyways... Uh, this podcast is all about introducing people to music that they should know more about and love, and the right. Jayhawks fit that perfectly. I'm going to go to their. Of course, now I got to find that. Tell you, they certainly have a West Coast sound to them. Yeah, they do. Even though they're from Minnesota, because I always heard the birds in some of their stuff. For sure, the yeah. birds. Yep. Hold on. You could keep talking if you want. I can keep waiting too. Yeah. I just want to make sure I know the album. Be a bear. Oh. What's that? This edit is going to be a bear. <laughs> well, you should have shut up then. <laughs> I am going to go to their 2000 album, Smile, which had a hit off it, but oh, it's yeah. not the hit. This is actually what led me to the to- what led me to this town and check out the way they approach their harmonies in the chorus. Yeah, it, it sounds like it could be a J.D. Souther record or a Linda yeah. Ronstadt record. Uh, it's got a little Laurel Canyon-y to it, which is kind of surprising that, uh, as I recall, that was produced by Bob Ezrin. Hmm. And Ezrin was like, uh, I know he did Pink Floyd's The Wall, for example. So, I mean, there was a guy, Roger Waters solo stuff. So, that was a big... Uh, yeah, a bit of an outlier for Ezrin. Yeah. But well, they had a string record. of records, Jayhawks did, from 1997's Sound of Lies through 2000's Smile on to 2003's Rainy Day Music mm-hmm. that are just, talk about perfect tens. Which yeah, we Rainy Day play. Music was the most bird sounding for me. Yes, that was a great was. one. Yeah. yeah, but man, is that stuff good. So help yourself to some Jayhawks. All right. Well, we are out of time. No, we're not. You have to tell them where to find us and all oh, that stuff. okay. Sell, 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 baby. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, you can find us at YachtRockPodcast.com. Make sure you are following us on Facebook and uh, Twitter. We're usually at, at YachtRockPod, as I remember. Um, where else? You can email us if you have suggestions for topics. There you go. Um, like we did from listener Greg here. And that email is YachtRockPod at gmail.com. And if you go to YachtRockPodcast.com, you can check out uh, the merch store, which isn't always our merch. It's more just Yacht Rock-inspired goodness. So how did I do? Now we're out of time. Ahoy polloi. Ahoy polloi.